Drake reveals his top five rappers of all time. Drake took to the comment section of his Instagram yesterday to share a list of his fate of his top five favorite rappers of all time, commenting on a post by the Toronto based rapper Young Tony, also known as OVO Hush, in which Tony had shared an image of some of his earlier mixtapes. Drake took the opportunity to reveal the artists who'd made the biggest impact on him, comprising of Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, The Notorious B.I.G., Andre 3000, and OVO Hush himself. My top five is Biggie, Hove, Wayne, Young Tony, and 3000 since nobody asked. Drake wrote in the caption, which has quickly attracted numerous likes and comments. Fans of Drake will likely be unsurprised by the list as he collaborated with Andre 3000 on the 2011 album Take Care and frequently expressed his admiration for Biggie, who he has previously cited as a major influence on his music. The inclusion of Jay-Z is more surprising, though the two artists have worked together. They have also traded jabs in the past, leading to frequent speculation about an on and off rivalry between them. As an early mentor of Drake's, Lil Wayne's inclusion is the most expected. Young Tony has been name-checked on Drake records in the past, including on the 2010 single Miss Me and on the track Deep Pockets, the title itself a reference to Young Tony's early mixtapes, which was part of the Dark Lane demo tapes released earlier this month. Notably, the Dark Lane demo tapes abruptly marked the end of a nine-album consecutive streak at the top of the Billboard 200. Um, I think Drake's top five is cool. I don't know about Young Tony because I've never heard him. <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't know who that was when I saw the comments. But I mean, Jay-Z and Biggie and Andre 3000, I could definitely see why they, they would be on there. And Lil Wayne, I could see why someone would definitely put Lil Wayne in their top five as well. I'm going to have to do a little research on young Tony. Um, if you guys want to send me a voice message and put me up on some of his music, please do. Cause I do not know who young Tony is at all. Reservoir acquires 16,000 copyrights by bringing Shapiro Bernstein into its port portfolio. New York-based Reservoir is now firmly established as one of the ascendant independent music right holders of the modern age and it just and it's just grown again. Reservoir has agreed a deal to bring stored U.S. music publisher Shapiro Bernstein into its ranks acquiring over 16,000 copyrights in the process. Those copyrights include songs recorded by The Beatles, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Michael Jackson, Edith Piaf, Patsy Cline, Bob Dylan, Carly Simon, Elton John, and many, many more. Sources close to the deal told us that it represents a huge move in publishing and is likely the biggest acquisition in Reservoir's history, though the company would not be drawn on a number when contacted by the music business music business worldwide.
The new deal will see Shapiro's Bernstein's Bernstein's catalog and global administration network integrate into Reservoir with an eye towards adding further value to the catalog through Reservoir's global sync, creative and marketing teams. In addition, the two companies will work together to identify new catalogs and creative opportunities to pursue through a new joint venture agreement. Founded in New York's 10th Pan Alley in 1900, (laughs) Shapiro Bernstein is home to valuable evergreen songs such as In the Mood, made famous by Glenn Miller, plus Rockin' Robin, performed by Michael Jackson, (laughs) Let There Be Love, Peggy Lee slash Nat King Cole, Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash, Little Little Bitty Pretty One, Thurston Harris, and Papa Loves Mambo, Perry Como. According to Shapiro Bernstein's own playlist, it also represents cuts in more recent hits such as I Got a Feeling, Black Eyed Peas, Lose Control, Missy Elliott, and Crush by Jennifer Page. Wow. I mean, this is a huge move. 16,000 copyrights? Huge. I mean, they're, they're going to make a lot of money from from this deal because if you factor in music licensing um, music being placed in film TV video games adverts 16,000 copyrights that is insane and this is why I always always say people should always be in control of their masters (laughs) so a, a company can't acquire your your copyright in, in some cases and a lot of artists they control their publishing there's some artists that own their publishing but there's a, a lot that just don't own their masters as well and this is a case where some artists <laughs> are their money is basically going to be made off of this artist and uh, these artists and had they owned their masters then they would be able to, you know, negotiate more money for the usage of their songs. But they'll they'll still get paid if they, you know, if they own their publishing, they'll still see some money, but they would see a lot more if they own their masters. It's always important to to own both. I've only done one publishing deal where I gave up a percentage and that was with TuneCore and that was basically a publishing administration deal. I haven't gotten any placements through TuneCore. All the placements that I've gotten have been through um, SongTrader and um, and basically through SongTrader. And some of those were instrumentals that um, TuneCore represents. So it's kind of funny. Um, But yeah, just owning your masters is very important. Because, like I said, I mean, this company's been around since 1900. Since 1900, they've just been collecting copyrights. So, I mean, that, that is long-term money. And um, hopefully more artists just really start thinking of their music like being real estate. I know it's hard, as a creative, it's hard to think about it from a business standpoint. But once the music is done, you have to think of it from a future perspective that this song may not be worth much in 2020, but in 2040, there might be a demand for it. You have to think of it. You have to think that long down the road that that 
everything that you make could potentially be another stream of income for you when you're making music. These brands are still tapping into nostalgia for slavery, whether you realize it or not. Mascots from the Jim Crow era are alive and well. Cream of Wheat, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's. These brand mascots emerged between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act. Dairy brand Lando Lakes is hardly alone in using a cultural stereotype as a mascot for generations, and also is not alone in its reluctance to speak publicly about it. Take for example, Miss Chiquita, which became the famous face of the banana brand in 1944 and was transformed into a vibrant Latin woman in 1987, Chiquita did not respond to a request for comment. There's also the ice cream bar known as Eskimo Pie, it was reportedly the brainchild of the proprietor of an Ohio ice cream parlor who partnered with the candy manufacturer Russell Stover in 1922 and trademarked the name, which according to the Smithsonian Magazine was meant to evoke the chilly north and in the indigenous people who live there. Though there's been corporate distancing from the mascot on the part of parent companies Nestle and Fronera, Froneri, the logo remains on its packaging, but arguably the most egregious examples of these mascots are the ones rooted in nostalgia, nostalgia for slavery, representing the Aunt Jemima, Cream of Wheat, and Uncle Ben brands that all emerged between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act. Aunt Jemima, Lossy, <laughs> folks sure cheer for fluffy, energizing Aunt Jemima pancakes. I, I can't post this picture, but the original picture, oh my God, like, yeah, it's flat out racist. I mean, they they definitely changed the look of it, so it, it wasn't as bad, but you have a heavyset black woman, black woman holding, holding a breakfast plate that has pancakes, and um, she has a wrap on, it just the way she, they did her face, uh, it almost looks like blackface. Aunt Jemima dates back to, the, to 1889, making it the oldest of these brands with problematic mascots. According to unjemima.com, the character was first portrayed in 1890 by Nancy Green, described by the brand as a storyteller, cook, and missionary worker. It doesn't mention that she was born a slave in Kentucky in 1834. Aunt Jemima was later portrayed by another woman, Anna Robinson. Her backstory is unclear, but the brand notes that after traveling the country to promote Aunt Jemima, starting in 1933, Robinson is able to make enough money to provide for her children and buy a 22-room house where she rents rooms to boarders. Other women followed actress Eileen Lewis was the last portraying Aunt Jemima at a branded restaurant within Disneyland from 1957 to 1964 and posed for photos with guests. A blog post from the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture explains that stereotypes about African Americans grew after the 1857 Supreme Court decision in the case of Dred Scott versus John Sanford, in which Chief Justice Roger Taney wrote the people of African descent were not U.S. citizens and had no right 
to sue in federal court. According to the Post, this legal precedent spurred characters of African Americans and popular culture, including the mammy stereotype of the nurturing African American housekeeper, with which Aunt Jemima is now synonymous. It was first popularized in minstrel shows after the Civil War. In fact, Marilyn Kern Foxworth, author of the book Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and Rastus Blacks in Advertising Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, wrote that Aunt Jemima hails from a song in the minstrel show that one of the brand's founding partners saw in 1889. Quaker Oats, which has owned Aunt Jemima since 1926, did not respond to interview requests. Of course, Mrs. Butterworth, another that potentially falls under this umbrella is Sir Brand Mrs. Butterworth, which was founded by CPG giant Unilever in 1961 and more recently came under the purview of packaged foods company Canagra and an email, Dan Skinner, manager of Brand Communication, said, We have never discussed Mrs. Butterworth's race, religion, or ethnicity other than to say that she is the motherly and <laughs> known the world over for her delicious syrup. She has, however, been compared to the mammy stereotype and actress Butterfly McQueen, who played the maid Prissy in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind, was reportedly the model for the original bottle. Skinner said Conegra has nothing in his records that verifies McQueen's role. Cream of Wheat. Just a few years after Unjemima, a hot cereal brand called Cream of Wheat started using a similar image. Holding company B&G Foods, which has owned Cream of Wheat since 2007, says the brand dates back to 1893. B&G and Cream of Wheat do not offer any information about the man on their boxes, although his image appears in a number of ads in a slideshow dubbed Our Favorite Memories. In a blog post, Kirsten Delagarde, co-director of the Mapping Prejudice Project at the University of Minnesota, said... Cream of Wheat founder Emery Mapes designed the packaging with a former slave he called Rastus. After the characters depicted in the Uncle Remus books of African-American folktales first published in 1880, according to a December 2000 essay by David Pilgrim, professor of sociology at Ferris State University, Mapes, a former printer, found the image of a black chef among his old printing blocks. This logo was used until the 1920s. Posed as the new chef, the image of this unknown man has appeared with only slight modifications. On cream of wheat boxes for almost 90 years, Pilgrim wrote. B&G Foods did not respond to interview requests, of course. The cream of wheat chef is arguably the most enduring example of the Uncle Tom stereotype in marketing. The pervasive character caricature <laughs> hails from the 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. As the Smithsonian writes, the stereotype of Uncle Tom is innately submissive, obedient, and in constant desire of white approval. In his essay, Pilgrim writes that the Tom caricature, like Mammy, was born in antebellum America in defense of slavery. How could slavery be wrong, argued in his proponents, if black servants, males, Toms, and females, Mammies, were contented and loyal, Pilgrim wrote. And it's this imagery in which Pilgrim notes the toothy, well-dressed black chef happily serves breakfast to a nation, 
that cream of wheat has used for 127 years. According to Uncle Ben's, the name Uncle Ben was adopted in 1946. That's four years after Forrest Mars, son of Frank Mars, founder of the food conglomerate that bears their name, acquired the rights to an easy to cook rice initially called converted brand rice. Who is Uncle Ben? Actually, he was two people, according to the brand's website. The name comes from a black farmer known as Uncle Ben, who, who grew rice so well, people compared converted rice converted brand rice to his standard of excellence. The proud and dignified gentleman on our boxes who has come to personify the brand was a beloved Chicago chef and waiter named Frank Brown. And his paper, Racial Etiquette, The Racial Customs and Rules of Racial Behavior in Jim Crow America, Ronald L.F. Davis, a professor at Cal California State University Northridge, noted that black men were called boy, uncle, and old man, to denote inferiority during the Jim Crow era, a period of segregation and discrimination following the Civil War that lasted roughly until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Beyond the brand name, the New York Times said the depiction of Uncle Ben with a bow tie was evocative of servants and Pullman porters, the African-American men, many of them former slaves who served white passengers on railroad sleeping cars from the 1860s to the 1960s. Sarah Lute, external communications manager for Uncle Ben's parent company, Mars Food North America, declined Adweek's request for an interview. Of course. You know, you know, what's interesting is how much these companies have profited off of this black images. And, and I just want to ask a question to these companies, the Uncle Ben's, Aunt Jemima's, the Mrs. Butterworth's. How much have you guys contributed to the black community?